Sure. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome to week. What week is this? Five. Very good. Yes. Halfway through the Alpha course. How many of you are still working on perfect attendance? That's excellent. That is excellent. Well, it's great to have you. Anybody here for the first time? First timers tonight? Welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Well, want to remind you that if you'd like to get uh, copies of any of the, the messages from the past uh, four weeks, we'll have them downstairs for you tonight. Or you can go online to lakeviewchristiancenter.com. And it's very important that you go to our Facebook page and like us. Whatever that, whatever that means. So, hey, I want to remind you that... Uh, I want to remind you that the Alpha Weekend, I told you guys about that a couple weeks ago, um, May 19th, May 20th, dinner starting at 6.30, breakfast Saturday morning at 8.30, we'll go till about just a little bit past noon. It's a part of the Alpha course, it's actually sessions 9 and 10, it really is a highlight of the Alpha course. Unfortunately, we don't have kid care, so if you could be, if you want to be here, and we really want to encourage you to be here, it really is a highlight of the Alpha Course, and uh, so that will happen between weeks 9 and weeks 10. So week 9 will happen, and then we'll have the Alpha Weekend, and then graduation, week uh, session uh, 10, week 10. So uh, please do your best to do that. Well, tonight we talk about why and how should I read the Bible. And uh, as I've mentioned a little bit to you growing up, I... I knew, I knew very little about the Bible. If, 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 if I were to be put through Frankie's Bible Quiz, um, my aunt called me Frankie, but if, if you were to ask me a few questions, one question would be, why should I read the Bible? Now just ask yourself that question as I'm asking myself that question. I would have said many years ago, I have absolutely no idea why I should read the Bible. So that would be my first answer to the quiz. Is Christianity based on the Bible? I guess. I'm not really, I'm not quite sure. I mean, think about that. Is Christianity based on the Bible? Well, I guess you've been here just your fifth, fifth week, so you're getting an idea that it is, but I, I, I didn't know many years ago. Is Christianity based only on the Bible? Well, I thought that's pretty narrow. That, that couldn't be. Um, question four, is Noah's wife Joan of Arc? It sounds reasonable. That uh, could be. Um, number five, name the four Gospels. It's like, uh, St. John, St. Paul, St. George, and St. Ringo. Those would have been the four Gospels as far as I was concerned. Uh, and then uh, last question, write down all the Bible verses you know. Okay, um, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. I mean, that's got to be in the Bible, right? It's one of my favorites. <laughs> Cleanliness is next to godliness. That was my mother's favorite scripture. It's in the Bible, boy, you better clean your room. I never got that. Um, and then the one I was absolutely certain was a Bible scripture. God helps those who help themselves. I would have scored a zero on this quiz 
without question. And so uh, the, the fact of the matter is the Bible teaches... Well, I don't, I don't know if the Bible has a problem with cleanliness being next to godliness. I'm just sure. But God helps those that help themselves. The Bible actually teaches the opposite of that. It, it teaches that God helps those who realize they can't help themselves. Which is completely contrary to the way you and I naturally think. Completely contrary. Because, you know, regardless of, regardless of the label, we still have this model. Now, this is the third week I've brought this, this to you. Uh, we still have this model, whatever label you put on it, that we can somehow manage in our own goodness to be good enough to get God to kind of fudge a little bit on the rules and let us in. Because none of us is perfect, and we all know that. We know that intrinsically. We know that from our parents telling us that. We know that from our, our employers telling us that. We know that in many different ways. This time of year, you'll find out real soon from, your, uh, from the IRS that you're not perfect in, in terms of your tax returns. So, so those are the things that happen. So, so why don't we know that the Bible says just the opposite of God helps those who help themselves? It's because we never had any idea what the Bible says. I had no idea what was in the Bible. But because when it, when it came to the Bible... Uh, see, because I hadn't really read it. I mean, I was a committed meologist. I, w- I was in this area here. I mean, I was in the whatever kind of, I was in the whatever camp. So I assumed things about the Bible. And I really thought, I really thought stereotypically. But the truth of the matter is, stereotypical thinking is not really thinking. See, when, so when I thought of the Bible... I, I would see the Bible attached to the hand, a big, big black Bible attached to the hand of a big man in a black three-piece polyester suit, uh, maybe black shirt, black tie possibly, long flowing hair with lots of product in it, as, isn't that the word product, Katie? Is it? Um, sweating profusely. As, as he glares down his pulpit at the congregation, screaming at them, I got bad news and I got good news. The bad news is that you're all a bunch of rotten, no good sinners and you're all going to hell. Well, preach, look, all we hear about is the bad news. Well, glory, I'm glad you asked, brother. I just talked to Geico, saved 15% of my car insurance. (laughs) See, as far as I was concerned, (laughs) there was no good news. Um, See, but because we don't know what the Bible says, because we don't know what the Bible says, we make assumptions. Right? I mean, think about this. If some of the things I'm about to tell you kind of rolled across your mind. Uh, you can't understand the Bible. It's too hard. You really can't understand what it's saying. Uh, there's so many different interpretations. I mean, who's really to know what the right one is? Uh, or it's, it's, it's all bad news anyway. And, and I got enough guilt in my life already without, without the Bible piling on. Or, or my, my personal favorite... We're not supposed to read it. We're supposed to have someone else read it to us and explain it to us. 
because we're just really not qualified. We're not educated enough to read the Bible. Well, I just kind of wonder, where do we get that idea that we were not supposed to read the Bible? As a matter of fact, if you read the Bible, you will find out that the Bible says exactly the opposite of that. And I could point out many, Joshua 1.8, sixth book of the, of the Hebrew Scriptures. For this book of the law, first chapter, verse 8, for this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night. Be careful to do all that's written in it. And then you will make your way prosperous. And then you'll, make, and then you'll have good success. Now, prosperous in God's definition of prosperous in terms of relationship with God, because we'll find out tonight about the Bible. Why reading the Bible? Because the Bible is about us experiencing and knowing God. You know, in, in the book of Revelation, many would say maybe the most difficult book in the Bible, the very first chapter says, if you read this, you are blessed if you do. It doesn't say you're blessed if you understand it, but it doesn't say you're blessed if you read it. And so, this, this book hearkens us into its pages and into the heart of God. So, I mean, and the statements that the Bible makes are just too important to leave to assumption. Uh, it, it, and I, I would argue that it's not that we have, we don't have enough information, that there's, the Bible doesn't give us enough information, it's just that many of us have, spiritually in particular, just stopped critically thinking or examining what is truth. See, because today, unfortunately, in, in, in many lives, the issue is not so much what the truth is. It's how a particular thing makes me feel. So if it makes me feel good, I'll accept it. If it doesn't make me feel good, I, I won't accept it. If I don't agree with it, I, I can't accept that. If I do agree with it, well, I'll, I'll accept that. But the issue is not how it makes me feel. It's not the, the issue is not my opinion. The issue is, is it Truth, And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, truth doesn't need for me to agree with it to be true. Truth doesn't care whether I agree with it. it my agreement doesn't make it true and it doesn't make it false. And so when we talk about the scripture, the scripture is, do we have evidence to support that God has spoken through man into the pages of the Bible to speak to us in 2017? And... And, and, and I love the fact that God has not asked us to chuck our brains. He hasn't asked us to check our brain at the door and just blindly believe this thing. Just read this book and believe it and stop asking questions. It, it doesn't do that. Again, it doesn't. Just the opposite. But God has called us, according to the scripture, if the scripture is true, God has called us to search for him humbly. I mean, really, if we think about this, if an intelligent creator designed all that there is. The universe that we can see and the universe beyond that which we can see. Uh, if he did that and we see the order in the universe, I would think it would make a whole lot more sense if he is interested in our communicating with him to do that in a humble way. Don't you think? If he is that magnificent in all that he's done. He's God. And he has the prerogative to tell us as God what he chooses to tell us and what he chooses not to tell us. And I, you know, the Bible, and I love this, the Bible tells us what we need to know, not all there is to know. 
Now think about that. The Bible tells us if the Bible is true, if it is God's intention to communicate with you and me who He is and how He is his interacting with His creation, He has told us what we need to know, not necessarily all there is to know. Uh, Mark Twain, who many of us have heard of, I love this quote by Twain. Not, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do. <laughs> See, I mean, Twain was on something here. It's not the parts that I don't understand. What about the ones that I, I do? And, 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 and we'll see in a moment that the Bible tells us that God is calling us, beckoning us to humbly, thoughtfully... Now, I want to repeat that word. Thoughtfully search for Him. Seek Him. Let's do a little multiplication, uh, multiple choice test right now. Jesus is confronted by a lawyer. Okay, now this is not Morris Bart, you know, or Michael Hengel or any of those guys. Not, no disrespect to any of them. Uh, but this is a, a, a lawyer, meaning a, 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 an expert in the Jewish law. And a lawyer asked him, as Jesus, a question, testing him. Teacher. So he acknowledges Jesus as a teacher. He says, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your... Here's the multiplication, or the multiple choice. With all your sincerity. With all your enthusiasm. I mean, just get razzed up about this stuff. Doesn't matter. It's true or not. Just be excited. Maybe somebody will follow you. With your higher consciousness. Got it? That's one. Or D, with your gut feelings. You know, you just got a gut feeling that this, 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 this may be it. Or E, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the answer is? Mind. See, Je- <laughs> I got it right. I got it right. <laughs> uh, okay. So, 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 what Jesus says, and, I, and I, now again, hear the words. Let's not read through the words too quickly. And Jesus said to the lawyer, "You shall," and I don't want to run past this word. You shall love the Lord. Okay. We, we all have a pretty decent idea what that means. Have affection for, be devoted to the Lord with your heart, with, 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 with your emotion, with your soul, with your whole being, and love Him with all of your gray matter, with your mind. And, and, this, and then Jesus went on to say this, this is the great and foremost commandment. God is saying, love me with all that I put in you. And so, when we talk about tonight, we're on page 34, why and how should I read the Bible? This is what we want to see. That this book we call the Bible, actually a compilation of books called the Bible, is laid out from Genesis to Revelation of God's creation his recreation, his drawing of man to himself. So let's just, we'll just look at a couple of, uh, of facts for a moment about, about the scriptures. 
some historical facts, just things that are true about the Bible, just some things maybe you don't know. I, I certainly didn't know. The Bible is comprised of 66 books, okay, 37 in the Hebrew Scriptures we would call the Old Testament, okay, beginning in Genesis and ending in Malachi, and then 29 books in the New Testament, equaling 66 books in the Bible. Okay? There are 40 authors from various walks of life, kings, fishermen, I mean, just many different walks of life, tax collector, etc., Across a time span of 1,500 to 1,800, around 2,000 years, the, the Bible is written. Uh, it consists of narrative history, war stories, drama, exposition, letters, prophecies, sermons, and wisdom literature, all types of different modes of writing, prose. It's written on three different continents, and it's written in three different languages, Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. And so we see a little bit about this. And if we were to break down the Bible this way, let me just, I have to come down here again to do this. But basically we could just break the Bible down this way. You see here, I don't know how easy it is for you guys in the back to read this, I'm sorry. But the first five books in the Bible are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is called by the Jews the Law, or the Penta, five, the Pentateuch, or the Torah, the Law. Right? And then we have these books from Joshua all the way to Esther are historical books, obviously primarily about Israel. Then we have the poetry books run from Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. We have the major uh, prophets and we have the minor prophets. These are larger books. These are smaller books. These major uh, prophets are more about global issues, not just Israel. The minor prophets mostly about, about Israel, not exclusively. Right? So those are the, those are kind of makes up the books of the Hebrew scriptures. Then in the New Testament we have uh, not John, Paul, George, and Ringo, but we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John make up the four Gospels. The Acts, the, this is the Acts of the Apostles, the first century church from Jesus' ascension into heaven, the day of Pentecost when the Bible says that the Spirit of God was poured out in Jerusalem, and, and the activities of the church pretty much in the first century. And then we have what, what we would call Paul's epistles, the, the 13 epistles that are written by Paul. The, the word epistle just means letter, all right? So the letters that Paul wrote, and these letters are written to the churches. They're written to those who got in the wheelbarrow. These are written to those who are in Christ. Okay, if you weren't here last week, and I'm talking about got in the wheelbarrow, that may be strange to you. So, so before anybody runs out of here, um, y'all make sure that they understand what that, that means at the tables. And then the general epistles written, you know, by James or Peter or John. These are the, the general epistles, again, written to those who have faith in Christ. And then, of course, the book of Revelation, which is the great prophetic book, end times book. And so that's basically how the Bible is, in a, very briefly, obviously briefly, put together. We see that the Bible is a very popular book. It's an amazingly popular book. The top 23 authors in, of all time have sold, just in their lifetimes, what the Bible has sold in 10 years. Okay, so in, in, uh, these authors have sold, what, I have a 3.5 billion sold in just 10 years. There's 5 billion copies of the, of the Bible. Five billion in ten years. That doesn't include the copies that were given away. There's, there's no way of knowing how many copies in the 1990s were given away. And that number's only increased 
in this new century. So we see that the Bible is a very popular book. It's also a powerful book. There's a few men that base their lives, men we've heard on, of, have based their lives on this. George Washington says, It is impossible to rightly govern the word, world without God and the Bible. Abe Lincoln said, I, I believe that the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. Uh, President Ronald Reagan, within the covers of the Bible are all the answers for all the problems men face. See, and then um, a professor at Oxford University that lived in the 1800s, um, he wrote this, it was fascinating. He was a professor of Sanskrit, which is basically liturgical Hindu or Buddhist writing, religious writings. And this is what he says, pile them, in other words, okay, if you just picture that I have a table right here, if you pile the books, let's say on the left side, so this, I'll just, I'll be your left side, okay, if you pile all the religious writings of Eastern religions, Eastern mysticism through the years. So that's what the it is there. Pile them, or them, if you will, on the left side of your study table. But place your own Bible on the right side, all by itself, all alone, and with a gap, a wide gap between them. For there is a gulf between it and the so-called sacred books of the East, which severs the one from the other utterly, hopelessly, and forever. A veritable gulf which cannot be bridged over, bridged over by any science of religious thought. In other words, there is nothing, what he's saying, there's nothing really that connects the theology of Christianity with any other Eastern religion. See? And again, I'll just say, if, what happened two days ago we call Easter happened. If Jesus actually rose from the dead, giving truth to, giving proof to the Christian religion, then it seems to me that we would be wanting to find out what is in this book if he backed up what he said with his historically being risen from, from the dead. And so it's a precious book also. It reveals, the Bible, it reveals who God is and who we are. Who we are with Him and who we are without Him. It is not a self-help book, the Bible. But it is a self-revealing book. And that's what makes it kind of scary. Do I want to see some of the things that this book has to say about me? And so we see here that God is also spoken in terms of revelation of himself. See, the Bible reveals in writing what I know, and I, and I have to believe you know, internally is true. That there's something bigger than I, someone bigger than I. Um, that we, we see things on the outside that say there, there's order here. That there is intentionality in what is created and I know that from what I see on the outside and, and what I feel on the inside, this conscience that I have that tells me that which is right and that which is wrong. Um, so, so why should I read it when I see all these evidences in front of me? Well, if it's true, it holds the answers to the questions 
that you and I have about life and meaning and purpose and what happens on the other side of my last heartbeat. It holds an answer to these questions that nag us no matter what great success we may have just had. There's got to be more than this. So, so unless really, unless you and I know what it says, we won't really know how important it is. Now, Paul wrote to uh, Timothy, and therefore he wrote to us, this about Scripture. He says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. Okay, it's profitable for this. It's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in that which is right, in righteousness. We've, we've defined that word over the last couple of weeks. That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So, so this is what the scriptures do. The scriptures are there to lead us, to show us our need for God. And then once we, again, once we, by faith, get in the wheelbarrow, receive the gift, say, I do... Turn from our old way of life and say, I want to my, my life to be connected to you now, God. See, it, it leads us to him and then what it does as his love letter to us, it, it, it shows us more and more and more of him. And so the Bible is there to ever increasingly reveal himself to us. And what I love this about this is that the, the teaching and the reproof it's, it's always love-motivated. The training and the correction, it's love-motivated. It's to draw us to Him, not to pull us from Him. And that's typically not how we think about God. I mean, I thought about God that I better be good. I mean, this is my religious, this is my meological thinking about God. I had to do good. Because if I didn't do good, He was going to get me. And you've maybe many of you here have thought that way too. He's going to get me. He's not going to give me what I want. He's going to give me what I don't want. And so we had this mental war going on in terms of what we were going to think about God. And it typically had to do with punishment. Not that God's correction or his teaching or his training or his reproving was love motivated. Now as a parent... I know I didn't always succeed here, but I know that Annette and I wanted to teach and reprove and correct and train our children because we loved them. If we didn't love them, we would have allowed them to continue on the route of destruction which they could have found themselves. But love teaches and reproves and corrects and trains, and this is what the Apostle Paul writes for each and every one of us, that he does, that God's Word does. And so, so you may say, well, why is it, why loving? Well, if you think about this, because Jesus bore the anger and the wrath of God that I deserved. He bore the anger and the wrath of God that I deserved. I've heard this said many times. And maybe you guys have heard this as well. Why is the Old Testament all this, you know, this angry God book? The Old Testament, angry. God, angry God. The New Testament just seems to be so loving and so accepting. 
You've, you've probably heard that. I know I've heard that. I've even asked that. But think about this. God sends His Son to become the satisfaction for the sins of those who would accept Him, who would turn from their own meological ways to Him. And He bears all the wrath and all the guilt of all the sin and all the rebellion and all the self-centeredness that I and you and everyone in all time has committed. I wonder what's a more angry book that we see man taking after man in the Hebrew Scriptures. We see the result of man's rebellion against God there. Or we see God take all that rebellion of all of us and put it on His Son. See, that's all the anger, all the sin, all the rebellion God puts on His Son so that you and I can be taught in love, reproved in love, corrected in love, and trained in love if we will turn from our self-centered ways and say, I need a Savior. I want a Savior. I'm asking you, God, to, to, to be to me what I cannot be to myself. And I see it more than ever. And so, so the Bible is really our manual for life. It, it's, it's, some call it the manufacturer's handbook, as well as God's love letter to it. It's the manufacturer's handbook. It's, it's the way in which uh, God directs us and instructs us um, I mean, trying to do life without the instructions is challenging. I, you know, as a father, I know that there, there are fathers in here that it's Christmas Eve, it's 11 p.m., and you have to assemble a bicycle by 6 o'clock the next morning. <coughs> you, ever, you ever been in that situation? Yeah. Um, well, imagine, so you're, I mean, who needs the instructions in putting together a bicycle. I mean a bike. You know, it's got a, the handlebars go here. The seat goes here. You know, the little mud strap, mud flap goes here. I mean, come on. So you put that thing together and, you know, it's looking pretty good. And then all of a sudden, you look over to the side and you see this piece. You're not quite really sure what, what that piece is. But you decide to look at the instructions. And you're looking for that piece, you know, the little you know, point and say, you know, all the numbers and everything else. And then you see something next to it that says, important. <laughs> this piece needs to be assembled early in the process of assembling this bike. The whole bike's together. So it's Christmas Eve. I go to the closet, I put on my coat, I'm very quiet, I open the front door, I step out into the very chilly night, I look up into the sky, and I say, curse you Mr. Schwinn, why didn't you tell me? Now, he did tell us. He did tell me. He put it in the instructions. But I thought I had a better way. Now, the, 
question here is this. God has given us instructions for life. He has given us a way to know who he is and who we are and, and how we can relate to him and know him. Uh, me. Instructions are important. And he loved us enough to give us instructions. And this is why I would argue we need to read the Bible. And, you know, we, we've talked about, there's, there's lots of evidences. And I'm just going to take a minute to just go through a couple of other evidences. We talked in week two about the science of textual criticism, right? Where, whereby we can tell by the number of manuscripts that we have existing, the quality of the manuscripts that are existing. In other words, do they, do they compare well to one another? Do they contradict one another? And then how many copies are remaining? And we saw that there's not a a work of antiquity that even comes close to the numbers of copies there are in that we have of the New Testament. We also can see through archaeology, and there's so many, there's a, actually a, uh, a, uh, a semi-monthly uh, periodical magazine called Biblical Archaeology Review that it's, it's written for the sole purpose of showing what most, the most recent discoveries that support archaeologically the, the Bible. Nelson Gluck, who was considered one of the, the fathers of, of biblical archaeology, he was the president of Hebrew Union College. This is what he wrote. He said, It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And... By the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. They form tesserae, little tiles, in the vast mosaic of the Bible's almost incredibly correct historical memory. It was spoken of Nelson Gluck that he would walk around with the Hebrew scriptures in his back pocket. And that would just be part of his day of archaeological discovery. And so we... So we see that archaeologically there's never been a dig where the Bible has not come out the better for it. The science of archaeology over the years has done nothing but corroborate the Bible historically. When we look at prophecy, you know, the Bible's a book with many prophecies. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's, there's over 300 prophecies about the person of Jesus. The interesting thing, there's a, there's a book that was written um, by a guy by the name of Peter Stoner. His book is called Science Speaks. It's written on the, the topic of the science of probability. The, we see that Jesus fulfills over 300 prophecies of the scriptures. But for one person to fulfill just 48 of those would be 10 to the 157th power. You got that? That's 10 with 156 zeros after it for 48 of those prophecies to be fulfilled. Well, let's just look at eight of them. Let's just look at eight. The place of his birth is told, we see in in, uh, Micah, the prophet Micah, his type of birth, Isaiah, time of appearance, and Daniel, Jerusalem entrance, betrayal, his type of death, burial, his resurrection. Okay, just eight of those. What's the chance of one person fulfilling just eight of those 300 prophecies? Well, that would be 10 
to the 17th power or that number. 10 with 16 zeros after it. Well, let me just give you a picture of what 10 with 16 zeros after it is. The state of Texas, big, long, boring state. Okay. <laughs> I mean, if you're driving, it's the. Um, picture the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. That's 10 to the 17th power. That's amazing. Okay. Now, let's just say I, I would choose any one of you to take a marker, go anywhere in the state of Texas, find a, any one of those silver dollars, pull any one of those silver dollars up and mark it with a big X and put it back in and then we send a Texas twister in just to go and stir it all up. The chance of you going throughout the state of Texas and blindly picking a silver dollar and it being that silver dollar with the X on it is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. The Bible says Jesus didn't fulfill 8 prophecies or 48 prophecies or 148 prophecies or 248 prophecies. But we see he fulfilled over 300 prophecies. That's, that's fascinating, fascinating evidence. But the question is, how much evidence is enough evidence? Now think about that for yourself. I had to think about that for me. How much evidence is enough evidence for me to actually say, well, maybe this guy is who he claims to be. Maybe he is who this, what this Bible says he is. See, there's a, there's a statement that says, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Now, there's all the evidence in the world will not be enough to me if I don't recognize one thing. That I have a need that no amount of success, no amount of accolades, no amount of money, no amount of anything has ever touched or scratched that itch. That I have a need that is bigger than myself and anything that this world could offer me. So if, if life for you is just all honey, no bees, driving down the highway of life, never having to take a left turn, that's super. But if you're here tonight and you recognize that there is a need in my life, that this very rough life, that nothing has been able to scratch that itch, nothing has been able to fill that, wouldn't it make sense to give this a thought, a critical thought, an intentional thought, a question to that God who may be out there saying, if you're real, and I'm not sure you are, and if you care, and knowing me, I don't know why you would, if this is true, I want to know. And if this Bible is true, you ask that question with sincere humility. He says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. If you will love me with your heart, your soul, your mind. But the, 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 but the issue is always, it's always it was need in my life. Heck, I have more questions after I surrendered my life to Christ. After I got in the wheelbarrow. After I was in Christ, I had more questions than before. But I was asking them from a different perspective now. I was asking them of a father that I trusted and believed. And I found with every question 
He gave me more answers that confirmed to me how deeply He loved me. With every reading of the Scripture, something mysterious happens. Mysterious, it's supernatural, right? It's, he is supernatural. He's above nature. With this, I believe, supernatural book, um, He has revealed Himself to me. So let's, let's just go back to... Let's just go back to Niagara Falls for a moment, okay? So we talked about last week the fact that you are... uh, You may be here curious. You're not quite sure what you believe. uh, But you're curious about this this stuff. And uh, and you're still here. And I'd like to hear more. And as I said to you last week, thank you for being here curious. Thank you. Please continue. Or maybe you're here convinced. Maybe you've grown up around this. You go to church every Sunday. Maybe you go to church every day. But you've never heard of this, uh, this step of surrendering to Christ. Of this repentance thing was always like, a, eh, that's Jesus freak-ish. That's over, that's over the falls, so to speak. That's not where I want to be. See? But in other words, you can give mental assent. That's what I was. I was, I was a meologist giving mental assent to God on my terms. I was convinced about all this stuff, dying on the cross and everything else, but it really didn't, it didn't really touch me. I had never firmly given myself over to His love and His care and admitted that I need, I need Him to be my Savior. Or maybe again, we talked about the fact of being committed. That means that I am committing myself to His commitment to me. I am trusting Him. I am surrendering to Him, trusting Him for what he did for me, that, I, what, that which I could not do for myself. I'm trusting the work of Jesus. I am committed to Jesus' work for me. I am committing myself to Jesus' work for me. And I talked to you, we, we talked a little bit about getting on the, um, that Blondin, remember we talked about Charles Blondin, stretched a tightrope from one side of the, the falls to the next. He did amazing things. Remember I told you that he would, then he asked, he comes to the crowd, and this is, let's say this is the crowd. You are the crowd. You've all come to see Blondin do his deal on the tightrope. And hundreds and hundreds of people would come see him do his deal at Niagara Falls. And many times he went there. And remember I asked one of you last week, do you, think, could you, do you believe I can take a man or a woman, put him in a wheelbarrow, and take him from one side of the falls to the next? And people said, and somebody said, well, sure, I believe you can. And then Blondin said to them, well, get in. See, because believing is getting in. I can sit there and go, sure, yeah, I believe you. I'm not getting in. But I believe you can do it. See, we can do the same thing with, with Jesus. We can say, sure, I believe that. But I'm not getting in. I'm not committing, a, trusting 100% of myself to you. See, it's, it's one thing if it's a publicity stunt. And it's another thing if suddenly there's a reason to get in. The wheelbarrow. So, let's say you're all facing me, the great Blondin, all right? And you're, you're watching, and I, Blond, well, let me just be in the crowd with you. And all of a sudden, we begin to feel heat on the back of our heads and our necks. It's incredible heat, and we turn around and we see that. The one way in which we've gained entrance into the falls area that we came is engulfed in flames. Okay, got that? Got that picture? Everything engulfed in flames. There's one way to get in and there's one way to get out. 
And Blondin turns to you and says, I can take a person, person, put him in a wheelbarrow, and take him from one side of falls to the next. Suddenly, it's not a publicity stunt, it's a matter of life or death. And I could say at that moment, Blondin, get out of the way, and I'm going to walk myself across the falls. I, that, maybe three steps. Uh, maybe, maybe three. Or maybe I'll jump into the waters of the falls. See, when suddenly you and I recognize that there's a need that's bigger than us, and the Bible speaks to that need, when Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Suddenly when he comes and you see that he's offering me something, he's offering me salvation. He's offering me deliverance. He's offering me meaning and purpose and life on the other side of my last heartbeat and meaning in this dash. Suddenly everything looks different when I, when I see that. See, uh, there's just a couple of problems with this for us, though. Problematic issues of getting in the wheelbarrow. When I get in the wheelbarrow, what is Blondin expecting of me? Is he expecting me to take over halfway? Is he expecting me to help guide? Frank, I got this. Be very, very still. And I will, I already proved it. Remember, he'd taken already take, gone from one side of the falls to the next. I've proven that I could do that. Now think about, if Jesus is resurrected from the dead, he has gone from life to death to life and come back to take us with him is what the scripture says if we will believe in him. He's, so I repent of insisting that God accept me based on my performance. To get in the wheelbarrow says it's no longer my performance, but it's your performance. And then I repent of, I turn my thinking of insisting that God accepts me based on all that I have done throughout all the years of my life. And I say, God, no longer am I going to judge you but by what I think you should do. But I'm beginning to see through what the scripture says you did that you are worth listening to. So what that means is I, I, I relinquish control. When I get in the wheelbarrow, I relinquish control of my life to the one who says he loves me and he died to prove it. See, when we see here in the second part, God speaks relationship. God's love letter is to reveal the truth about his character. It's to, re to reveal the truth about his character and therefore and thereby draw us to him. Here's Paul, another letter to the, the uh, his letter to Timothy. He writes that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. When you get in the wheelbarrow, or when you stand at the altar and you say, I do, you've exercised faith. From childhood you have known the sacred writings, the scriptures which are able to give you the wisdom that leads you 
The scriptures give us the wisdom that leads us to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And so the Bible, it really is, is to draw us into a relationship, a two-way relationship. Look, I, I began to quote this scripture a minute ago. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29. Come to me. Do, do you fit this? All you who are weary, and all you who are burdened, and I will give you rules. doesn't say I'll give you rules, does it? I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, which I want to give you, is easy, and my burden is light. So he's saying there's two steps here. You come to me. That means you're acknowledging your need. And I will give you rest. We come to him. Hey, Mike and me a couple of weeks ago. Mike, you want this? I gave it to him. But Mike had to do what? He had to accept it by faith. And so we see here, he, if we come to him, if we recognize our need, which the scripture shows us we have, he will Give us rest. Not rules. Rest. Relationship. See? And Jesus said in John chapter 10 verse 10. He says, I have come that they might have. It doesn't say rules. And rules more abundantly. It says I've come they might have r- life. And life more abundantly. I need life. I don't need more rules. I need, I need life. That's what God said. He came to give us life. And you see. And we are made in the image of God, relational. Okay. The deepest aspect the scripture tells us of God is relationship. He came, he sent his son. Okay. He didn't drop a rule book out of heaven. He sent his son to us to reveal that God so loved us that he gave his son. Let me just show you the deepest the deepest essence, if we're made in the image of God, let me just share with you, the, just give you an example that proves that the deepest essence of who we are, we are relational. Um, you are in a funeral home. Just go there with me. And you are standing over the body the person that means more to you than life itself. You there? What would you not give? What would you not give to have that relationship alive before you again? I, I would argue you give everything. 2,000 years ago, God looked over our, your, my, lifeless being and gave his son so that if we would believe in him, we would have life. God looked over we who were dead in that coffin, so to speak. gave us life to all who would believe. See, God directs us to himself 
through the scriptures. He gives us the scriptures to direct us to himself, the God who created you and me and created all things. Romans 10, 17, Paul writing to the Romans 10th chapter, chapter verse 17, faith okay, comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of Christ, by God's word. See, faith comes, it, it reveals itself, it shows up by our hearing and hearing comes by our hearing of reading of the word of Christ John chapter 10 pardon me John chapter 20 verse 31 John in his gospel writes but these things are written that you may believe that you may get in the wheelbarrow that you may say I do receive the gift that you may believe that Jesus is the, is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing, you may have life in His name. I remember last week I had two cups, and I'm sorry for not having them again this week. But we had an in-Adam cup, which was death and separation. We had an in-Christ cup, which was life, forgiveness, connection to God. In this scripture, John says, the scriptures are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. And so, what, what does this book do? What do I do with it? How do I begin to go through it? Where do I, it's a big book. Where, where do I start? Oh, well, that's a good question. And that's hopefully why you're here tonight, wanting to know about where we start. So, first thing. Are you in Christ? See, this is God's love letter to us. This is God's way in which He has determined, if the Scripture is true, the way in which He has determined to reveal Himself to us. And He says if we read it, faith will come. Faith in Him will come. Faith to trust Him will come. Faith in the, in the midst of all the evidence, which is really interesting, but faith which is greater than what I see or can taste or touch or feel, is what God says He offers me in the reading of this gift that He has given. And look, there's some difficult stuff in here. Uh, there's some real difficult stuff in here. But every bit of it is for you and me to grow closer to Him, to grow into relationship with Him. And so, how do we hear God speak through the Bible? Well, um, just like you hear, I would say, anything. You get alone, you get quiet. You put your cell phone in the next room. You put away your vacuum cleaners and anything else that would distract you from just being there with God. You find, you plan ahead. Uh, maybe in the morning, maybe you're a good morning person. I would encourage you to just spend 10 minutes just reading. Okay? And then don't feel like, oh gosh, there's so much more to read. Just, I, you know, I, I believe it's not how, how much you get through, but how much gets through you. It's not how much I get through reading-wise, content-wise, but how much gets through me. And 
And so I would encourage you to read the scripture. Read it again. Pray before you begin to read. God, I, I, this is my maiden voyage here. I've, ne- I've never done this before. I, I, I don't know where to start. And I would encourage you just to start in one of the Gospels. I would really encourage you. And start, starting in Genesis, which you could do if you want to. But I would encourage you to start in either Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. Maybe read John, maybe the first three chapters. Maybe you could just do that. Three chapters in the chapter of John between now and next week. And you'll find that three chapters are about three pages, depending upon the size of your print in your Bible. And so, so again, this is not for the sake of doing an activity. When, when, when there were letters, you remember those letters, those things that used to come in the mail, and they had postage, and, and Annette and I were at LSU, she would write me, and I would write her every day. And I couldn't wait to get that letter. And I would read it, and I would read it again. And I'd read it again. And I'd put it away for a while, and I'd read it again. And said, why is she writing to John? This is not, I'm frank. Uh, No. Uh, But, and and that's what God has given us. It it is rare that I I read a scripture over and God doesn't show me something different. I've read it a hundred times. I'm seeing something different about him. Because this is a supernatural book written by a supernatural God through natural man. So, I want to encourage you there. I don't have a, a, a slide for this, but John, if you want to write this down, John 8, 31 and 32. I, I love this that Jesus is recorded as having said. Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, John 8, 31, 32. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. God is saying that in this word that he gives, as you read this word in faith, he says he will open up to us who he is. And he will open up to us who we are. He will open up to us our need for him. And he will open up to us the need that he and only he can satisfy for us. And that we will read this book, that, it, that we would ingest this and supernaturally faith in Him will grow. Trust in Him will grow. And that is His promise to us. Alright, well let's take a quick break. Uh, take a quick break. We'll come back next week, session 5. Why and how do I pray? Okay, so we're going to talk about prayer next week. So thank you again for being here. Let's take a quick break and come back.